Natalie Hoffman spent more than 10 years at Bethlehem Baptist Church, the church where John Piper pastored for over 30 years. During that time, she said she was also stuck in an abusive marriage, yet rather than helping her, she says Bethlehem blamed and shamed her and left her suicidal. Welcome to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's. And today, Natalie Hoffman joins me to tell her story, a story that's extremely relevant given what's happening at Bethlehem right now. As you may know, three pastors have resigned from the church, including Jason Meyer, the successor to John Piper. About 10% of the church membership have left as well. And while the issues surrounding the exodus and upheaval at Bethlehem are complex, one issue is consistently mentioned above the rest, a toxic culture that perpetuates and enables abuse. The current abuse complaints surround a prominent professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary and an elder at Bethlehem Baptist Church, Andy Nacelli. If you've read my articles, you're aware that rather than commission an independent investigation into the allegations of spiritual abuse concerning Andy, Bethlehem College and Seminary conducted an internal investigation and, not surprisingly, they found Andy innocent of the charges. A similar scenario played out at Bethlehem Baptist Church. And now, those who say they've been wounded and abused at Bethlehem are crying foul. And that's why I think Natalie's story is so eye-opening. It spans many years and reveals a truly shocking pattern of behavior involving pastors, elders, and counselors at Bethlehem. And this isn't just any church. This is a church and seminary that trains pastors and influences churches worldwide. So I think this is a very important podcast, and I'm very much looking forward to my conversation with Natalie. Also, according to Natalie, one out of three married women sitting in an average conservative Christian church is in a confusing and painful marriage, and they're often not getting the help that they need. So I think Natalie's story of surviving an emotionally abusive marriage is going to be extremely helpful to an awful lot of women and the people who love them. But before diving in, I'd like to thank the sponsors of this podcast, Judson University and Marquardt of Barrington. Judson has been an incredible partner and supporter of this ministry, and I'm truly grateful for the school's commitment to truth and to the Roy's Report. If you're looking for a top-ranked Christian university providing a caring community and an excellent college experience, please consider Judson. For more information, just go to judsonu.edu. Also, if you're looking for a quality new or used car, I highly recommend my friends at Marquardt of Barrington. Marquardt is a Buick GMC dealership where you can expect honesty, integrity, and transparency. That's because the owners there, Dan and Kurt Marquardt, are men of character. To check them out, go to buyacar123.com. Well, again, joining me today is Natalie Hoffman. Natalie is a survivor of an emotionally abusive marriage. She's also the mother of nine children and the founder of Flying Free, a ministry for abuse survivors. She also is the author of Is It Me? Making Sense of Your Confusing Marriage, A Christian Woman's Guide to Hidden Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. So Natalie, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I am honored And I'm super excited to be here. Oh, well, I'm super glad to have you. And I know your story is hard to read in some ways because of what you endured, but I think it's going to be so, so instructive for people. So before we dive in, I should mention that we're making your book, Is It Me?, available to anyone who gives a gift of $25 or more to The Roy's Report during the entire month of September. It's a great book, and I'm so excited to offer it. 
And I want to just remind folks that your gifts are crucially important to this ministry. So if you're interested in getting a copy of that book, just go to julieroy, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com slash giveaway. So Natalie, your story is one that I think, sadly, is really, really common to a lot of women in sort of a conservative Christian context. And we're going to get into the details of your marriage, but first... I just want to dive into something that you say in one of your articles. You say, Bethlehem is an unsafe environment for abuse victims, even though the church does address some of these most serious forms of domestic abuse, like physical abuse or sexual abuse, but you still say it's unsafe. Would you explain why you say that? I don't think the church understands all the different types of abuse, and I don't think they take certain types of abuse seriously. My statement's more that they're unsafe for victims of emotional and spiritual abuse. Number one, some of these churches are actually spiritually abusive themselves. So of course, they're not going to recognize it when the husband is using God or the Bible to try to control his wife. The church is using God and the Bible to try to control their parishioners as well. So they're going to kind of be on the side of the abuser that way. Um, But Mm -hmm. emotional abuse is a hidden kind of abuse. It's not something that you can see on the outside. That's the main problem. It's very, very difficult to prove what emotional abuse is. So people who have never experienced that kind of insidious abuse and control, they're not going to understand when the woman comes forward and says this, these are the kinds of things my husband is doing. They're going to be able to explain all of those things away. And the thing is, is that people in marriages, we do have, you know, there are going to be disagreements and there are going to be times when we don't understand each other. That's normal. But when you have a pattern of behavior that's going on week after week, month after month, year after year, where the other, where one of the partners is not able to take responsibility for any of their behaviors or words or thoughts or actions, that's abusive. Hmm. And this is where I think this is so relevant to what we're seeing happening just currently at the church, because there are so many allegations of there being a toxic culture there of it being a spiritually abusive culture or where people who are spiritually abusive uh, are given free reign. And it's it, when it is called out, it's not able to be named by the leaders. They're, they're not admitting that certain things that some people say, including experts like Brian Pickering, who was the pastor of counseling is saying, this is spiritually abusive. And others are saying, no, it's not. So again, just so many, I think, crossovers between your story and what's currently playing out at Bethlehem. I want to just quickly talk about something that's called the DART initiative at Bethlehem. I believe that start uh, stands for Domestic Abuse Response Team. You say that this DART program gets it wrong just completely right out of the gate. Would you explain why you feel that way? They're very into counseling and giving all kinds of help and support for the abuser and not for the victim. The victim is kind of, she's kind of left on her alone. Here's some numbers of some people who can counsel you, go get help for yourself so you can heal so that you're all ready to be an amazing wife. When your husband is, is all fixed, we're going to make sure we fix him. How we're going to help you is by fixing your abuser. That's what's wrong. That's not what, how we help a victim. Hmm. Well, let's talk about your specific situation. As I understand, you were married in 1993, and for 10 years before you came to Bethlehem Baptist Church, you were in another uh, conservative church, and 
you realized from the get-go you were in a problem marriage. You went to them and tried to get some help. What kind of help did you get in that church prior to coming to Bethlehem? It was the same kind of thing. It was just a couple of years into the marriage and my journals were all already full of just agony. And mm. I went and sat down with a pastor and then a an elder in that church. And I shared with them what was going on. And they and, and actually my husband came with me. And they just basically said, you know, here's what they, uh, they believed me and they told my husband, here's the things that you need to do. But then they also told me on the back end, you know, it's now just up to him. If he doesn't, he doesn't have to do those things. He doesn't have to change. And then you're just going to have to, basically, you're just going to have to buck up and learn how to be a godly wife in a very difficult marriage. And that's just kind of what some people have to do. Hmm. Can you describe more, I mean, specifics for someone who's never been in an emotionally abusive marriage? I mean, what does that look like in a, in a day-to-day kind of way? And how do you know if you're in an emotionally abusive marriage or if you're just in a difficult marriage that, you know, is hard to be in? Some of the behaviors that you'll see are you might see them, they're dishonest, like just leaving out information where they'll tell you some information, but not all the information that you need to make a decision. And then when you make the decision or you move forward with something, they'll say, oh, I can't believe you did that. You should have known better. And you're thinking, I didn't have all of the information. I didn't know all of the, all of those pieces. Um, they'll hide things from you, the gaslight you. So they'll say things happened that you don't remember happening or they'll, or if you do remember something going down a certain way, they'll say, no, that's not what happened. There were times when my kids and I would all say, you know, he would say something and we would all say, you just said this, or you just did this. And he'd say, no, I didn't. And we would look at each other and think, are we insane? Like what is going on here? Mm-hmm. Um, does he chronically say that he's going to do something, but he doesn't follow through on those commitments. And we all do that. Sometimes we'll say we're going to do something and we don't do it, but then we own it. You know, we say, oh yeah, I didn't do that. I'm so sorry. I made a commitment. I didn't keep it. I'm really sorry about that. I will work on that. These guys will be like, well, I, I didn't, I never promised that. I never said that. Why do you, or, or they might say, why are you always on my back so much? You're just always nagging me about everything, kind of turning it around and making it something bad that you're doing rather than just taking responsibility for their inaction. Um, Mm -hmm. They will often inflate the good things that they do and kind of minimize the things that you do. Um, They'll point out what they've done and kind of want praise for just normal adult responsibilities. And we all, again, we all like that, but these guys will kind of make it an art to do this. That's why the people that I help, it's not just anyone. I really specifically help Christian women deal with this stuff because they have to deprogram from a lot of the Christian thinking that is used against them again. And that is spiritual abuse using these Mm -hmm. Christian teachings to control and manipulate them emotionally and spiritually so that they will show up in the ways and be the like the Barbie doll person that their partner, their Christian husband, isn't believes he is entitled to have a relationship with. Hmm. And I do hope that conservative Christian churches, which is the church I go to, the church I grew up in, I love the church. I hope we're we're learning. I will say we were visiting a church because I'm out of town right now, 
and uh, the pastor happened to talk about wives submitting to husbands. And there, you know, there's a part of me that just always is like, oh boy, what is what is he going to say? But he said, and he made a big point of, it says submit in the Lord. It does not say if your husband is abusing you that that's okay. If what he's doing is not in the Lord and is not honoring the Lord, then that's not something you submit to. And I was like, wow. I was, I mean, really surprised because this was a very conservative church. But I do think we're learning and hopefully uh, part of this podcast, I mean, part of the reason I do this is because I hear from so many women and church leaders who say, wow, that was so instructive. Thank you. Um, so let's let's get to Bethlehem Baptist. You came in 2003 to Bethlehem. Sounds like a lot of the same sort of things started happening, and you met with an elder at one point several times. Doesn't sound like you got very far or like he really understood it. But then there was this incident with your 10-year-old daughter that was... I mean, shocking to you, and even me reading about it, I was like, wow, that's the sort of thing you cannot let go. So w- would you describe that and then how you dealt with it? Yeah, well, that that situation was really complex. She, um, she is now uh, almost 18, and she was diagnosed with emerging borderline personality disorder. So she has, and she's been in therapy for years, but so she has got her own set of mental health issues. Okay. At like at layers of them. So, um, from the time she was a very small child, she, you know, the, you know, the terrible twos, the normal temper tantrums. I mean, I had nine kids, so I'm very familiar with this. Well, she was number five and it, those normal temper tantrums and things were, she wouldn't respond to the, the ways that I was trying to train her. In fact, she just got worse. The older she got, the more violent she got, the longer her tantrums would last. We're talking hours and hours mm. and um, where she would scream until she could hardly use her voice anymore. She had blood vessels that would pop out of her, you know, that would pop in her face. So her face would be all blotched. And just because she wanted a peanut butter sandwich or because she wanted not to do something or, you know, whatever neither my husband at the time, nor I knew were equipped or knew how to handle it. We should have, we were okay. So we were very immersed in this very conservative homeschooling environment where there was a lot of suspicion around mental health and, you know, secular counselors Mm -hmm. and all of that. Mm -hmm. And, um, we, so we did not reach out for help. And until she was 10, actually, that actually, when this incident happened, that was my wake up call. And I was like, okay, this is ridiculous. This child needs help. My husband needs help and I need help. But what had happened was she was having one of her temper tantrums and he would take her downstairs and would try to get her to stop. And I, and it was abusive her, she came upstairs afterwards. And this, I remember because it was Easter the next day and we were going to go to church and mm. both sides of her face were black and blue. Mm. And I was completely freaked out and I brought her to him. And I, th- well, this was the next morning. Cause I didn't, you know, it, I think it takes a while for the, the bruises to show up on the face. And this was that mm-hmm. night when this happened. So the next morning I saw it, And I brought her to him and I said, what is going on? What did you do? And he said, his, he said, all I did was put my hands like 
put her, put my hands on each side of her face of her head. And she took her head and bashed her head on both sides of my hands. Now, from a physics standpoint, that's not going to give a child black and blue marks. Okay. So I pointed that out to him. I said, no, sorry, that did not, that is not what happened here. You did this to her face with your hands. And I wanted him to come to go to a three day marriage intensive. Cause I was thinking if, you know, I was still looking, had this magical thinking that something like that could fix him and we would be okay. So I made him promise me to do that. And if, um, and then I wouldn't tell anyone, but I did tell, I did tell, I reached out to someone at the church, the wife of a pastor there, and she had no answers for me. She was like, I'm really sorry. I don't really know what I can do to help. She just kind of blew me off. And then a pastor came over, um, David Livingston. Okay. I'm just going to name names because none of these people are accountable to anybody. I don't know why. Well, and I will say I did reach out to Kurt Elting Ballard, who is the chairman of the elder board and did send him your entire story and asked if he would like to talk about it or if the church had a response and they did not respond. So anyway, he, he came over and didn't really, I mean, I don't even remember the conversation because it was just so pointless. Um, it was basically him, I think just checking off a box saying, I made my little visit to the hurting family, did my thing. Mm -hmm. Now I'm moving on. And, um, and that was the end of that. Now that was now the good thing that came out of that is that it woke me up and I realized I I am culpable here too, unless I get some help for my daughter and also start working on things. That was the beginning of our journey, my journey really with her in getting her help. And, um, she is doing, I mean, she still struggles cause she has a personality disorder, but she is doing better than I could have ever dreamed that she could do at this point. You also wrote a letter to one of the husbands in your, your husband's accountability group, like he had a men's accountability group and the wife of, of this man. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So I actually have an excerpt of their response to you, which I think is very telling from the husband. He wrote, as for your letter, I do not plan to read it. I am all for people confessing their own sins, but I find it very disrespectful to publicize other people's, particularly when it appears to have been done without their knowledge or consent. So in other words, you, you shouldn't be writing him a letter with anything bad about your husband in it. And from the wife, I am no marriage counselor, but I have a hard time fitting this email into Ephesians 5.33 and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's a pretty strong rebuke for a woman who's reaching out saying, my husband's abusive. How did you receive that letter? Um, I was devastated because at the time I was feeling so hopeless and so, um, alone. And the letter that I wrote was so carefully written. And it was, I had been reading some books. I, I quoted many of the things in the books. It was carefully written. And it was also written with a lot of grace for my husband, because I still, I loved him and I wanted someone to help him so that we could have a healthy marriage. 
I knew that having a healthy marriage would be good for him and would make him happy. And I knew that if he could be a healthy person emotionally and mentally that, and spiritually, that he would also have a more fulfilling and full, meaningful life. So, and would have better relationships with his kids because this, his behavior was affecting his relationship with his kids as well. And nobody on the outside could see it or, or cared about it. And then I specifically reached out to the three couples who had been involved in our lives for many, many years. So these were people who I trusted and who, so I wasn't airing dirty laundry. I was going to just to these three couples. And then when they responded this way, I thought, well, if the people that were the closest to feel this way, then there is no way anyone else is going to. I I have to stop like looking to other people to rescue me or to figure this out. I gotta, I'm gonna have to figure this out myself. This is what it is. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to do something about this myself. Um, but yeah, I was, it was like a slap in the face and it was very hurtful. Well, like you said, you felt like you needed to take some control of your own life and of fixing this problem. You began, I believe, uh, coaching with Leslie Vernick, who's the author of The Emotionally Destructive Marriage. You also still, though, were, were meeting with, as I'm understanding, an elder from Bethlehem, Yoshi Kashahara. Also, Caroline Jones, who's a counselor who was attending Bethlehem Baptist. Could you kind of contrast what Leslie was telling you and then what Yoshi and Caroline and, you know, others at Bethlehem, what they were telling you. Yeah. Um, Leslie really helped me a lot with seeing that I, I could not control all these other people. I could not control my husband and I needed to stop trying to make my husband change so that I could be with him. I needed to start accepting my husband for who he was. He'd been trying to show me this for, you know, 20 years. And then I needed to decide what I wanted to do about it for me, what I was going to do for my life. So she was equipping me to make decisions. Like I had my own business at the time Mm -hmm. that I had built from scratch and I was making pretty good money by that time that I had to give I gave it, I would use that money to do the home, like pay for a lot of the homeschooling stuff. But then I would put all of it into a joint account. And then my husband controlled all of the finances. So he was still controlling all of the money that I was making, which on the one hand, I mean, that seems fine, except that if I decided that I wanted to buy something, I wasn't allowed to do that. I would have to ask permission. And if he didn't, if he thought it was stupid, which he usually did, then that was it. You know, I didn't get to do that. So one of the things that Leslie empowered me to do was I bought this table for our kitchen, this gorgeous, this gorgeous table that I have to this day was, it was a conversation piece and it was a huge gargantuan table. I have a big family and I was kind of thinking ahead to future grandchildren and whatever. And, um, I, my husband was just extremely upset with me that I did this, but I did it with my own, the money that I had earned. And, um, that was a huge step for me and very scary. I was terrified to buy that table, but Leslie was encouraging me to do that. Now, on the other hand, I had this elder at church and then this other counselor from church who were telling me to, you know, the typical things you need to, if you were a better wife, then maybe your husband wouldn't be this way. 
are you making sure that you're doing this, 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 and this, and are you checking off all of your boxes? And the elder actually gave me a book called fierce woman. He was implying that I was a fierce woman. And if I would just be a more, you know, have a more of a gentle, quiet spirit, the way a godly Christian woman, it should have, then my husband would be a good, a good man. He would be inspired and I could inspire him. Well, I, I read the book cause I, I'm like one of those rule followers. If you tell me if, if my mommies or daddies tell me to do something, I will do it. And then I'll like do it 10 times over, you know, I'll, I'll give you, <laughs> I'll give you more than you ask for whatever. And so I read the book now for who I, how, how we've evolved over the past few years. If someone handed me that book, I would say, oh, this is funny. Yeah, no, this book is, is this isn't who I am, but thank you. Mm. But back mm. then I was like, oh, maybe I better. And I took notes on it and underlined things in it. And I was like, okay, mm. there are some things in here that I could really work on, but I could not relate to the author of that book. She, the way that she was and the way she treated her husband was not how I was treating my husband. It was not how I was treating my relationship. So I, but I could tell Yoshi thinks that that's what I'm doing. Cause that's how my husband is telling you. That's what my husband is telling Yoshi. My husband was playing out to be a victim and Yoshi believed my husband. The whole thing got turned on its head. Now I'm actually the abuser and my husband is the victim. Hmm. What do you do with that? At that point, what can you, what, what can you do now? There's a, a whole different narrative out there. And, um, it doesn't matter what, it doesn't matter the 20 years. My husband didn't have 20 years of journals documenting everything I did, but mm -hmm. he was the victim. So, mm -hmm. and then the, the counselor that I went to, I didn't go to her very long. Cause I don't think she liked me very much. And I think she wasn't really a counselor. Okay. She had gone through the neuthetic Bible counseling training or whatever. That's right. it. The biblical counseling. Right. And I was like one of her first guinea pig clients, but I mm -hmm. think there were things that she was still dealing with in her own personal life that maybe she was projecting onto me and probably didn't even know what projecting was because she didn't have any kind of education in this area. So, um, I, uh, I just said, thank you very much for your help, but I can't I don't think I'm going to be able to see you anymore. And of course mm. the church then viewed that as look at Natalie, you know, Natalie thinks she, she knows everything. Natalie is not open to help. She's not teachable. She's not, which is the exact opposite of what I was, but you know, they just, that's the narrative that they wanted to go with. So, well, and that's, what's so tough when you're dealing with um, most abusers that I found are incredibly manipulative. They're sometimes very, very charming. I mean, James McDonald is still tweeting about me, how I have abused and victimized him after, I mean, he's <laughs> one of the most guy. abusive people. I, I know, right? Um, little old, you know, journalist Julie has, has bullied the, you know, megachurch pastor out of his job. And it's like not owning anything of dozens of people who have come with abuse. And they've even done an independent audit now. I mean, of course, none of the, the misuse of funds that, that they showed are real. I mean, it's just, it's mind boggling 
how they're always the victim and people will still, I mean, a lot of people will listen to them and, and divorces are messy. I mean, or, you know, troubled marriages are messy and it is sometimes hard to figure out, but we're talking, this was many years. And so let's fast forward now, 2015. So you came in 2003, this is 12 years that you've been talking to the pastors, complaining about this marriage of, of what's happening. And there's actually a bright spot in all of this. So Jason Meyer has recently taken over as lead pastor. He's a successor of John Piper. And he agrees to meet with you, and not just you and him, but also uh, Kurt Elting Ballard, again, the head of the elder board, Ken Curry, who's another pastor, and then Kirsten Christensen and Sarah Anderson and Kristen Marsh, who are all part of this new uh, domestic abuse response team, or DART. So this looks pretty positive, and from what I understand, their findings were pretty positive, right? Yes. We sat down in Jason Meyer's living room, with also with all the wives, and it was mm. me. They were talking to me and one other woman who had been in their church who had been trying to get help for quite a while. And they listened to our stories. They wept with us. Mm. They told, They promised that they believed us and they promised that they would have our backs. And this is after me getting my chain yanked over and over again. And they even, Jason even specifically said, I know you have every right not to trust us, but I mm -hmm. want you to know you can trust us this time. I promise you I'm, he was brand new. He was like coming in and he was going to really make a difference in this church. I don't think he realized the layers and layers of problematic issues that were going on that he would, that he'd have to confront. I think he realizes it now from what he's written in his resignation letter and from the interviews I've done. But yes, I'm sure at this point he did not. There was a lot of compassion and I did feel safe for the first time. And I felt believed for the first time. And I had so much hope. I thought I had died and gone to heaven. I thought this mm. is the beginning of like real hope at this point, there is nothing I wanted more. I never divorce had never crossed my mind. Still, I was completely not thinking of divorce or planning on it. I grew up in a Christian home. You do not divorce is like not even an, a, a concept that you even consider. So mm -hmm. that was where that was my, the space of my head at the time. I was just looking for help. Like someone help my husband, someone help mm -hmm. us. So, um, I thought we were getting help and I was super excited. And then it all went bad. <laughs> Let me just read a quote from one of the emails that they sent you. It says, uh, they wrote to you, after the meeting, the five of us, Dave, Klaus, Kirsten, Kurt, and myself, were of one accord that there was no repentance, speaking of your husband, not even anything a remotely resembling repentance. We really do not think that your husband is a believer it was good for Klaus and Dave to get a firsthand look at how flatline your husband is and how clueless he acts about his sin and how he demonstrates an almost complete lack of ownership for the breakdown of the marriage. I mean, at this point, 12 years at Bethlehem Baptist, 10 years before that at, at another church, kind of hitting your head up against the wall. This must have been, you know, really felt amazing. But like you said, it kind of all went south. Your case was handed off to several other elders who really didn't seem to have that much 
history with it. I, I, Klaus apparently was a part of, uh, he was brought into the whole process with the elders and pastors who had been a part. But then Kirsten Christensen, the head of DART, she was uh, brought in as well. And at this point, the ones that seem to understand you seem to delegate your case over to others. Am I getting that right? Yeah. So the reason why they did that is because there are three campuses at Bethlehem. And mm-hmm. I think they wanted to um, just keep the jurisdictions clean. And so they just said, since you and your husband go to the South Campus, we're going to have mm-hmm. two elders from the South Campus follow up. And so mm-hmm. they had, and they did have those two elders in that meeting. You you quoted um, the email. Okay. That mm-hmm. that email quote was from a meeting that where they sat down with my husband at the time and tried to get a feeling for what was going on from his perspective. And Klaus Van Zee and David Filzen, who were, were all were in that meeting. Okay. So then I think that because they all kind of agreed, then Jason, Ken, and Kurt decided, okay, we've got Klaus Van Zee and David Filzen up to speed here. We're just going to pass um, Natalie and her husband over to them and they'll like follow up. So the plan was my husband and I were separated by this time. Um, and there was going to be this three month time period where again, this is what's so typical where they said, okay, here's the list of things that you need to do husband. And at the end of three months, if you've done them, we're good to go. So Hmm. my husband got his list of things to do and he started, you know, checking them off by this time. I knew what I was going to look for. I was going to look for one thing and one thing only I had zeroed it all down. I needed him to take full responsibility and I needed him to no longer blame me, shame me, deflect, uh, make excuses, justify, minimize, none of that. He had to take full responsibility for his behavior and he could not do that. I never saw him do it. Not once. So that was happening on the back end. But when I tried to explain that, they would say, oh, you're just being so nitpicky. You're just being so, so he would send an email. We would have these email exchanges mm-hmm. and they were kind of watching them. And I would try, I was at this point, I'm trying to teach the dart team what to look for. I'm trying to show them by this time you go, I had read so many books. I had been talking now to other abuse advocates. I was, I was like on a track, like on a fast track mm-hmm. of learning all the things. And so I started trying to teach, I started finding all of this stuff in his emails to me and then showing the dart team. Well, when he does this, that's what this tactic is. And, and this is this kind of a tactic. And, uh, and they just interpreted, interpreted all of that as being, you're just being nitpicky. You're just, you know, you're not trying to make this work. You're not being very forgiving. Um, you're not really owning your stuff now because all you're so focused on him and his stuff that you're not owning your stuff. But here's the thing about abuse. The victim doesn't need to own her stuff. She's not, a, she, she's a victim. Okay. It's not her fault that mm-hmm. he's chronically doing these things. It's not her fault that he lies to her. Okay. She, so she doesn't have to, well, if you were, if you had more sex, maybe he wouldn't lie to you. No, that's not how mm-hmm. it works. They just didn't understand. And it started, it became a very mind boggling thing to me that this dart team was writing literature and trying to give it to other churches for how to help people. And I was thinking, you guys don't, you guys don't know how to help people. 
How can you be writing stuff about it? You don't even know. And you're totally botching my case. I never said that to them, but I'm thinking all of this stuff. And I'm thinking, this is so crazy that this is happening. Well, at the end of three months, um, I decided at first I just, they wanted to go another three months. And at first I was like, okay. But then, um, I realized this is just, this is going to just keep going the way my marriage has gone. It's just, we're just going to keep going over the same ground over and over. And I could already tell these two men, Dave Filson and Klaus Van Z, which was my understanding at the time that their marriages had also been very rocky and there was separation and stuff going on in their lives. So I knew that there could potentially be some projecting going on where, you know, and maybe some aligning with my husband's perspective because they were both men. Mm-hmm. They both, <laughs> they probably didn't like it when their wives said, I really don't like it when you do these things. So they're kind of aligning with my husband and seeing me and my stuff as being what they're up against in their own relationships. That is the, mm-hmm. that is the feeling that I was getting more and more as we were moving on. They, I did not have any good vibes when I was, when I had to sit down in meetings with them, I felt intimidated. I felt disbelieved. I felt, um, I felt really, really gross. I felt like I was sitting with two abusers and, Mm. um, I just, I just realized I can't do, I've, I've got to stop doing this. I stopped and realized I actually have a choice here. I don't have to go to this church. I don't have to go to these meetings. I don't have to go through the hoops they want me to go through. I could just walk away and be done. These people are just people. These people are just people. They're not gods and goddesses. They don't hold any power or any sway over my life. Why am I so scared of them? So um, that was a very good you know, breaking point for me, I think. And the beginning of my just taking responsibility for my own life and letting them be them and realizing that I need to be me. Well, I think that's probably a common feeling of women who grow up and, and sometimes it's warranted. Like I, the authority figures that I had in my church growing up were amazing people. And I did give them a lot of respect but you do realize, and uh, you know, I've realized it, you realize through your situation, I realized through all the reporting I've done, that there are leaders with huge blind spots. And sometimes they're not bad people. Sometimes they just have huge blind spots. And sometimes they are bad people and they're wolves in cheap clothing. But often, you know, situations, you know, and, and I don't know, we can't judge people's hearts, but sometimes they just don't get it. Or like you said, it might be too close to their situation. But it's interesting to me, there's no professional counseling involved here, except you were under Kirsten Christensen, who was the head of DART. Is is she a trained counselor, a professional counselor? She's not. There was another um, woman, though, who was also on the team at the time. I think she ended up leaving. But Kirsten Marsh, she was a licensed counselor. So she did have experience. I really liked her. But she also had an agenda, unfortunately. And I think whenever a counselor, therapist, people, helper, coach has an agenda and cannot hold space for the person to be where they're at, that can create lots of problems. 
And I think her agenda possibly, and you know, I can see her actually having grown past this, but I think at mm -hmm. the time she was immersed in this team of people and their perspective, and she wanted to cooperate and she, her agenda was let's make sure that we get these two people together and let's make sure that Natalie is doing her thing. And so, um, she wanted me to, you know, show that I was willing to look at my stuff as well. And I, so I, so I told her all of the, I wrote her an email and told her all of the different things that I am doing to work on my stuff. I had been working on my stuff for, you know, 20, however many years, over 20 years by that time and mm. reading all the books and doing all the things and trying new ways of communicating. And I, it, I had made it my life's work by that time to figure out how to please my husband and not be injured by him. And I was a big failure at it, <laughs> but at mm. least I tried. Right. So right. I finally just had to say to all of them, including Kirsten, I just had to say, here's all the things I've done. And I really, I need to try something different now. I really need to take care of myself now. And thanks so much for all of your help, but I got to move on. And I did. So in October, 2015, you disengaged from DART, my understanding in April, 2016, you filed for divorce. And like you've been saying, that is not one of the options that you felt Bethlehem would allow. And you, you describe a meeting that you had with Klaus von Zee and Kirsten Christensen, again, the head of DART. This was in May 5th, 2016. I mean, it sounds to me reading this, that this was a devastating meeting. Can you describe what happened and why it was so profoundly painful for you? Yeah, it's so weird. I'm feeling emotional about it. And I have, I've actually had EMDR therapy over this meeting. And I, for some reason, I mean, it's still to this day when I think about it and I, um, it affects my whole body. It's just, it was, mm. it was one of the worst experiences of my life. Um, so they wanted to meet with me and I, I asked my sister to come with me because I was scared and I knew that it, that they were going to, you know, try to correct me or try to get me to change my mind about the divorce. And, um, but I thought again, it, it was me just trying so hard to be cooperative and trying to do my part. And so I went into it again, looking back on it, knowing what I know now, I just would have said, no, thanks. You know, I, I just would have disengaged completely, but I was still growing and changing and figuring things out. So I went into that meeting and they, it was very short. It was, I mean, I think it was less than 10 minutes long. So you said that you wrote an email and I have just an excerpt from this email that you wrote in response after this meeting. And it's, it does express the angst that you were going through. You, you write, what I never saw coming was that Bethlehem was going to go for the only thing I've been promised by God that I can keep through this horror, and that is God himself. He is my life. It would have been kinder to take a knife and gut me than to sit back, look me in the eye, and tell me God is not part of my narrative. It was a lie from hell that struck a hard blow to my heart and still sends my heart racing every time I think of it. I went home and curled up in bed, wide awake all night. 
I couldn't even cry. The pain was so horrific. It permeated every cell of my body. I could only lay there shaking for hours. And then I got up and took care of my seven hurting children by myself. Yet yeah, I had seven at the time. That is a gut-wrenching letter. I, I can't even imagine receiving that and knowing that I played a part in some of it. You sent this to a lot of people at Bethlehem. What response did you get? Well, I, I sent it just to the people who had been in that room originally and, mm-hmm. and then those two elders. So the people, I only sent it to the people and their wives who had promised me that they were going to help me. And nobody responded, nobody, including Jason Meyer. And I know that, you know, he's left Bethlehem now and he's seen a lot of stuff there um, on another level, but he has never reached, he, he and his wife, they've never reached out to me, even if they would have looked at this more closely. And actually my daughter, um, she was, oh, I can't remember how old she was at the time. She was a teenager. She actually reached out to Jason specifically. I didn't know it. She told me later um, and sent him an email begging for his help because we, I was in a really dark place at that. I went into a depression at that point. Hmm. Um, and I ended up having to go to the doctor and get on medication just to get myself. Cause I had to take care of these kids. And one of them, well, I had an autistic child. One of my children had this mental health disorder. And then my dad was dying of cancer. I had so many things go on my plate. Wow. Plus I was running a business trying to make money to, you know, so I could get divorced. So, um, he did respond. It was just a very kind of a lame, you know, thanks for letting you know, I know life is hard kind of a thing. So, um, Anyway, I, I just, to me, I just think that is a really good illustration of the, of the heart of Bethlehem. That's the heart of the elders of Bethlehem right there. That is their heart. Well, and I think for those who are stuck in those systems, because I've reported on so many of them, that the ones that do have a good heart have a very difficult time acting on it and they either they either become part of the system or they eventually get out and then feel really bad for what they did or the ways they participated with the system and of course not knowing not hearing from the particular people involved you know uh, I always like to extend as much benefit of doubt as, as possible but yeah, that's, I mean, these are the things, and I've interviewed quite a few people at Bethlehem Baptist or at Bethlehem College and Seminary who say similar type things. I'll say, you know, there's good people there, but they keep looking the other way, or they keep allowing it, or they want to keep their job, so they do this. And this is just, that is the sort of thing you hear when it's not just one person, it's not just one bad thing, it's it's a toxic culture. It's systemic kind of abuse and, and, and a blindness to it so often. So, um, your story again, so, so powerful and shockingly, I, I didn't realize this till I started reporting on Bethlehem. You can't, you can't resign from membership whenever you want. Your resignation has to be approved by the congregation. And it sounds like in 2017, you tried to resign from Bethlehem 
and they, they wouldn't let you, right? And you yeah. got it, you ended up getting excommunicated because you divorced your husband, right? Well, I actually sent in my resignation letter in 2015. So two years okay. prior to that, and they, they wouldn't accept it. So it wasn't for, it wasn't until two years later that they, so this, so even before I filed for divorce, I tried to resign, hmm. but they wouldn't accept it. So, um, yeah, two years later when, when my divorce was final, that was when they sent me a letter letting me know that they had excommunicated me. But I did have someone who, you know, sat in on the, cause these are public meetings where they have to have a quorum of people to vote someone out. And right. so they sh had to share, they got to share their side of the story, which was totally twisted. And there were so many lies in it. It was just absolutely insanity publicly to hundreds of people. And those people all, you know, had to, you know, they had to have a majority of people raising their hands to agree. Yep. Let's give her the boot. Hmm. So by that time I had really done a lot of healing and I just kind of decided, Hey, you know, every church gets to be who they are and what they are and define themselves. And this is how they define themselves. And I got out or, you know, and they, they just, <laughs> I was picturing them jumping up and down like a little toddler. No, you cannot leave. We will be the decision makers of whether or not you leave. And, you know, it's actually kind of amusing when you think about it, because it's just, again, it's so much control, but you know what, you know, what, what my responsibility was in that was signing that member paper in the first place. I chose to sign a paper that agreed to all of those things, to all of those rules. I agreed to put myself under their control. Now I would never do that again. I don't recommend it, but you know, everyone has to make that decision for themselves, but just know if you do sign a paper like that, then they can turn on you. If you decide that you've changed your mind about what's on that paper, that's just the way it goes. That is a whole other discussion and a worthy one. I have heard from so many people who have, and I've become a member of every church we've been a part in. Uh, in, in my adult life. That's what we do. We're joiners. We're, we get involved. We, we give in you know, our resources and in our time. And that's what we do as believers. That's what I've always pictured as, as part of our, our, I don't want to say duty because it doesn't feel like a duty when you're doing it out of love for Christ. You know, I mean, it's a joy, but I've never really thought about you know, signing on the dotted line. I never read the fine print on the membership because I just trust them. And I think a lot of people operate that way. And, and so I don't think that's an uncommon, um, an uncommon kind of story if the things go bad, if the church, again, is set up in such a way that it can be uh, very highly controlling and, and in some cases manipulative. Um, we're pretty much out of time, but a couple of things. I just want to give you an opportunity briefly to speak to Bethlehem or churches who say they want to help abuse victims about how they really need to act to help abuse victims. I think, first of all, they need to get educated and they need to be educated by experienced people, people who have experienced abuse there are some amazing books out there that they could read. They can bring people in. Leslie Vernick is a great person to have come into a church and teach you things. They like Bethlehem wouldn't uh, allow uh, Leslie to come in because she is a woman. So uh, 
So that mm. right there is, um, but she would have been really helpful for them. Um, so even if she's not preaching, just the fact that she's a woman, she can't present on something. Right. Because they're men. She could present on something if she was presenting to women, but not to men. Oh, wow. So it doesn't matter if some of those men are in their mid twenties and she's, I don't know how old she is, but she's an older woman, um, mm -hmm. with, with uh, you know, over 30 years of counseling experience, written several books on this, goes into churches all the time and speaks on this has, this is what she does, it mm -hmm. does but that doesn't matter because they're just by virtue of their malehood. So, I mean, just things like that. Anyway, I would say, assume that the person who comes to you for help is the one who probably needs the help not the one who presents you with a good story in his defense. Mm -hmm. And also I would say, don't have an agenda, hold space for God. God is the one who gets to lead and guide these people. And just because someone gets a divorce or, or even the abuser, I don't think that it's appropriate for churches to say, okay, abuser, I mean, whatever you know his name is, you have to do A, B, and C. No, they don't. They don't have to do what you want them to do. They get to be who they are and do what they want to do. Make decisions based on who people, what people are showing you that they are not based on what you think they should be, or, you know, some idea in your mind of what your end goal is. So if we just held, if we just held space for people to be who they are, the woman's asking for help. Why don't you just help her? Why do you have to go and and she, now maybe she's coming to you and saying, change my husband. Then you can say, actually, we don't do that. Your husband needs to want to change. Now, if he comes to us and asks for help, we can help him get him into some good counseling, but for, but you're the one here. So we want to help you. We want to support you. How can we help you and support you through this? What do you need from us? What do you want to do? And if she says, I want to be separated, let's help you get separated. If she says, I need to get divorced. Let's help you get divorced. Let's help you find a good attorney. Let's help you get your kids, get the healing that they need. Now, if he comes and says, well, I want you to help me stay married. Then they can say, well, what you can't control your wife. What do you need to do? Maybe, maybe, you know, if you want to stay married, maybe you need to get into some therapy and, and learn how to be a guy that where his wife doesn't want to leave him. Most of the time in Christian circles, Christian women who love Jesus, they're not saying, I want to get a divorce because I just don't like this guy anymore. Yes, it happens. It is very rare. In fact, a study was done and it showed that Christian women actually are the initiators of divorce more than Christian men are. And I don't remember what the percentage is. It just is more. Their top three reasons are number one, were abuse, infidelity, and abandonment. Okay. The top, but, but when they interviewed the guys, the Christian men who had initiated divorce, the top reason was they had met someone else. They were having an affair and they just wanted to be done with their marriage and go on and have mm -hmm. their new girlfriend. Mm -hmm. So I think people need to understand that I, I'm, there are obviously exceptions to the rule. But if a woman is coming to you and saying, my husband is hurting me, he's been hurting me for 20 years and I need help, someone help me, then you need to believe her and you need to help mm -hmm. her. Well, and believing victims is such a big deal. I mean, and that's what the Me Too movement is showing us. Victims are normally victims. They usually don't make up their stories and at churches, 
Though, I mean, I don't know if you saw that Sin of Empathy video that Joe Rigney and Doug Wilson did, which has been part of the story of Bethlehem. Uh, I mean, I watched it and my jaw just like, I was out running while I was listening to it and I came back and I was just, I was ready to hurt someone. I mean, it was just, and and it's yeah. not, I, I have yet to find a victim who's just manipulating things. It's like you can hear the believability and they're almost always telling the truth. And, and to sit back there and say, me as a powerful man who's never experienced being a vulnerable woman in this kind of a relationship, I'm going to pass judgment on it and assume that I know more than the victim knows. It just struck me as incredibly arrogant and not the kind of message that we need to hear in the church. We need to hear some humility from the men that are leading these churches to have a willingness to listen and think maybe I'm missing something and and begin standing up for the victims, not the powerful person who doesn't need an advocate half the time. They have enough power. It's usually the woman uh, and the victim and it's not always a woman who's a victim. I mean, as we're seeing in some of these, actually some of the, the cases of spiritual abuse were against men, but they were in vulnerable positions. They were usually students where they have a professor. I mean, again, the power differential. We're, we're slowly, slowly learning, I think, as a church. And Natalie, you and your ministry and your story are helping us understand it. So I just want to thank you for taking as much time as you did and telling your story so honestly and vulnerably and despite all that, being faithful to the Lord. That's a testimony. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that. And again, thank you for our time. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks again for listening to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's. And again, if you'd like a copy of Natalie's book, Is It Me? Making Sense of Your Confusing Marriage, A Christian Woman's Guide to Hidden Emotional and Spiritual Abuse, we're happy to send it to you for a gift of $25 or more to The Roy's Report. If you'd like to do that, just go to julieroys, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com, slash donate. Again, julieroys.com slash donate. And again, your gifts are what fund this podcast and all the investigative work and articles we publish. So please consider supporting The Roy's Report. And thank you so much to those of you who have already generously given to this ministry. We could not do it without you. And just a quick reminder to subscribe to The Roy's Report on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. That way you'll never miss an episode. And while you're at it, I'd really appreciate it if you help us spread the word about the podcast by leaving a review. And then if you would share the podcast on social media, we'd really appreciate that as well. Again, thanks so much for joining me today. Hope you have a great day and God bless.